Well, good morning, everyone. It's a delight to be here with you this morning. As I was introduced, I'm Daniel. I'm from Glasgow. Well, been working at the Tron Church for two years down there. And it's just a privilege to be up here with you this morning and share with you the word of the Lord. So we'll be looking at Jonah chapter three. So we live in a time where confrontation is frowned upon. We do not like to be the bearers of bad news, and much less do we enjoy calling people out. These are things that make us unpopular, and even if we do them out of love, it is hard to confront someone. Think of times when you have had to confront a friend or a family member. We easily try to avoid it and make excuses for delaying it. However, if we do not speak with them, it just shows that we do not care about them. We don't care that they continue to go down a bad path. It's at its core a demonstration that we don't love them. However, if we continue with this picture of confronting someone, we would in most cases be happy if they have turned away from the wrong path that they were traveling down, maybe a toxic relationship or a bad habit. Nevertheless, it's likely that they would not have turned away where was it not been because an issue, a warning had been issued. We need to be warned and we need to give warnings. Otherwise, it's likely that we will keep on driving until we fall off a cliff. And today's passage is a clear indication of this. It shows us that for Nineveh, the route to mercy was through a confronting message. For us today, we're not too far off from this. The confronting message of the gospel, which tells people to repent and believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord is the only route to mercy. So having said this, let us recap what has happened in the book of Jonah so far. From the first chapter, we see that Jonah disobediently turns and runs away to the ends of the, of the known world before heading to Nineveh. And in contrast to this, we see the behavior of the sailors who were with Jonah and who feared the Lord greatly. Jonah abandoned his prophetic role while the sailors respond positively to the Lord. But we also see a glimpse into the character of God. We see that he's supremely powerful, more so than any of the pagan gods that the sailors would have prayed to and who would have thought that were, were an explanation for the storm. But we also see the Lord being wonderfully compassionate by seeing how he spares the sailors. In chapter two, we get a surprising prayer, one that happens from the belly of a fish. Jonah compares himself favorably with pagans in this prayer. And although he admits the danger that he is in, he does not admit any wrongdoing. And let us remember that it was gross and flagrant disobedience from Jonah's part in chapter one. The fish eventually vomits Jonah after three days, and we come to chapter three. So here in the first verse, we see a retake for Jonah when the word of the Lord comes to him for a second time. Verse one of chapter three is very much like verse one of chapter one. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, but this time Jonah does go to Nineveh rather than run to the ends of the known world. And today's passage breaks nicely into three sections, and that is how we will explore this chapter. We will first look at the word of the Lord and the city, verses 1 to 5, the word of the Lord and the king, 
verses 6 to 9. And lastly, in verse 10, the gracious response from the Lord. So we come first, the word of the Lord and the city. The first thing to notice as we approach today's passage is Jonah's obedience. If in chapter 1 we see Jonah act with gross disobedience, where he runs in the literal opposite direction to what God calls him to go, here we see Jonah obey the word of the Lord according to verse 3. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now, at this point, we may be critical of Jonah. We may think, well, why did he wait to go to Nineveh? Why didn't he go straight away when God commanded him? For us to answer this question, we need to understand what great a city Jonah was being sent to. For Jonah to go to Nineveh shows significant bravery. Nineveh was a major city in the Assyrian Empire. We see from verse 3 that the city was a three days walk. And not only was this hub comparable to the likes of London or New York today, but it was a city in the enemy empire. Jonah was very much going into the eye of the hurricane by going to Nineveh. In modern terms, and regardless of your view on politics and with all its contours and nuances, it would be like us thinking today that a young man from a small town in Ukraine would go to Moscow. That is the danger, and that shows the bravery of Jonah. When we think it in modern terms, in modern terms, in modern terms like this, it really puts into perspective the bravery that was required from Jonah to go to Nineveh. To make things even more dramatic, Jonah was going with a confronting message to this great city. The word of the Lord comes to this great city through Jonah, and it's a message of judgment and of confrontation. If we don't like the idea of telling a friend to stop a toxic behavior that is harmful for him, imagine telling a whole enemy nation that they need to turn from their wicked and ungodly ways. Just ponder that for a moment. It is not something that we think about too much. As I have said, we may be quick to attack Jonah and be critical of him, of being a coward. But we would not have behaved any differently, I dare say. But what's this confronting message of judgment which I make reference to? Look with me at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah is telling the people of Nineveh that their beloved city, a hub of 120,000 people according to chapter 4, will fall. We read that Nineveh will be overthrown. This is a shocking message at which people could have easily laughed at and dismissed it. A metropolis the size of Nineveh to be overthrown in 40 days would have required unfathomable power. This one man against a vast metropolis, this needle in a haystack, after only one day's journey, not having covered the majority of the city, begins to cry out that the city will be overthrown. Sounds like madness but it really is committed, brave obedience from Jonah to the word of God. However, there are a couple of things that I want us to notice at this point. In the midst of the message of judgment, there is mercy. Forty days of grace are shown to the city of Nineveh. The judgment is not immediate, and the Lord grants a period of time for the pagan city to turn away from their wickedness. And also see with me verse 5. It reads, and the people of Nineveh believed 
God. The people of Nineveh believed God. They repented and were recipients of this great mercy that, was, that spared them. We see that all of them, from the greatest to the least, the nobleman to the gardener, all of the city corporately repented and mourned their sin. The fast and the sackcloth were outward signs of an internal reality. The heralding of Jonah proclaiming the message that God had entrusted him to preach was the route to mercy for Nineveh. Before moving forward, let us consider the implications of this. Had it not been for, the message that, for this message, the people would not have turned. This shows us the problem of a judgmentless message. Why would Nineveh have turned to God if there was no judgment? They would not have done so. They turned because judgment was coming. Judgment was imminent. And today's situation is not too different. If we preach a message where there is no judgment, people have no reason to turn to God. Mercy and judgment are two sides of the same coin. Every message of judgment is also one of mercy. And every preaching of mercy also sheds light on the reality of judgment. For Nineveh, the confronting message of judgment led them to be recipients of mercy by turning to God. Today, we need to ask, why would people turn to Jesus Christ the Lord if we do not show them that they were on the wide path to destruction? The confronting message of telling people today to turn away from their evil and turn to God is a message of mercy. So we have seen how the city responded. But let us look now at how the king responds. So we come to our second point. The word of the Lord and the king. Looking at verses 6 to verse 9. The message that Jonah, that Jonah preached spreads like wildfire. The city responds together and the word reaches the ears of the king. And we have a behavior that is not one we would expect from a king, let alone a pagan king. There is personal humbling from the king. Look with me at verse 6 and what the king does. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The removal of his royal robe and putting on sackcloth is an expression of humility from the king. Again, very much like what we saw in verse 5, the putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes is nothing more than an outward expression of an inward reality. The king is evidently abdicating his power and rule in light of the sovereign power of the one true God. He acknowledges that he is powerless before the God of heaven and earth, according to the message of Jonah. This pagan city, which would have been viewed not just by modern standards as barbaric and violent, but also by Jonah's standards as being a barbaric city, responds in what, in what we may say is a normal and commendable way. But alongside the personal humbling of the king, we also see, we also see a public proclamation which reinforces and amplifies the people's response that we saw in verse 5. In this decree, we see what the fasting entailed and what the repentance of the people really looked like. With the looming threat of all animate life being completely annihilated, the people would have seen it fit for the animals, who were to share in their human master's fate if they were all to be destroyed. They see it fit to, jo to have the animals join them in the humbling and public penitence. 
I think it's hard for us to visualize a public repentance of this magnitude that is being described here. It involved everyone, nobleman and commoner, young and old, man and beast. Everyone was turning away from their evil ways. However, see with me the second half of verse 8. Uh, I'll read all of verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from their evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The king was not satisfied with a public appearance of repentance and demands a change in moral behavior. A commentator puts it very well when he says, The king is not satisfied with a cultic show of penitence. He demands in addition a change in moral behavior, a personal turning from wicked ways, lest penance be a cloak for persistence in sin. Genuine repentance is not an outward show, but it rather is an inward reality. A turning away from sin and weakness and turning to God. It is both. And this is something that I want us to be very clear on before we continue. It is easy to say we are sorry with tears in our eyes, to have a mournful attitude and a sad face, yet still indulge in sin and be okay with our sinful behavior. We need to turn away from our weakness. And this is very much in line with what the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church in his second letter to the Corinthians. See with me what 2 Corinthians 7, 10 reads. I'll read that for us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If there is no inner turmoil within us, if there is no battle against sin within us, where we turn from our wicked behavior and wage war against sin and turn to God, we are only putting on a show and masquerading our sin. The grief that we have and we feel when we sin must lead to repentance. The attitude of the king of Nineveh is commendable, for not only does he know that repentance is more than an outward show, but he is also not one to presume on God. See with me what verse 9 reads. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He knows that it is the Lord's prerogative to execute judgment on Nineveh or to spare them. He's not one to demand mercy and presume that just because they have fasted and put on sackcloth, they are now exempt from judgment. No, he knows it's God's call, not his. This section where the king of Nineveh repents and consequently the entire city repents as well would have shocked the Israelites who would have been the first readers of this book. It shows a behavior from a pagan king that contrasts the behavior of that of any king and especially king of Jeroboam II, the king to whom Jonah preached to in Israel as we see in 2 Kings 14. The response of this pagan king is unlike the response of any king from Israel, the northern kingdom. We know that King Jeroboam II did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so was the case with the king of Nineveh. The difference lies in that the king of Nineveh, this pagan king, repented and did not presume on God. The call for us in light of this is not too different in the sense that we are not to presume on God 
and think that because we come to church or pray the prayer once or because I have the appearance of a Christian, I can carry on like nothing. Not at all. The call is one to profound spiritual reformation, to genuine repentance. And even then, you need to know that by no means is that a way to twist God's arm. Just because he's gracious and just because he does show mercy does not allow us to presume that because we have repented, we can now get to dictate what God does. We, yeah, we cannot say to God what we demand from him. Far be that the case. However, as I said, God is indeed gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And so we come to our third point. The gracious response from the Lord. As we come to the last verse of this chapter, we see how God responds to Nineveh's repentance. We read that God relented from the disaster. Now, there are two key things from, the, from this last verse that I want to draw your attention to. The first one being that God saw that the people turned away from their evil ways. It was, just, it was not just the outward appearance that God had been persuaded by, as if that was even a possibility. No. What we are told is that God saw that they had turned from their evil ways. That is the evidence of true repentance. Forsaking all our evil ways, departing from them, and turning away from them. This by no means refers to sinless perfection. Please don't misinterpret me in that. What I am saying is, it does mean fighting sin and taking seriously. That is true repentance. The second thing that I want to draw out from this last verse is God's amazing mercy over the city. God does not destroy it. A violent pagan city which repented is granted undeserving grace. Now, I understand that the question at this point is, what does it mean that God relented? Well, endless books have been written on this, and a lot of ink has been spilled trying to figure out what it means that God relented. But I'll just say that both from Ezekiel and to Peter, we know that the Lord does not want anyone to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. So by no means can we say that God's plans changed. On the contrary, the warning served its purpose. That is the point of a warning, to prevent something from happening. If the intention had been to destroy Nineveh then and there, why would a warning have been issued? In light of this, we can see that the warning was a demonstration of mercy for the people to repent. You see, the entire message that Jonah preached to Nineveh was one of mercy. Warning of judgment is not by any standard unloving. On the contrary, it's very loving, even if it sounds harsh. Just think practically. If you're a parent and you're telling your child to stop playing on the side of a busy road because it's dangerous and a car might hit him, your child might cry, he might throw a tantrum, and he might even say that you don't love them because you're not letting them do what they want to do. You're not letting them do as they please. But you really do love them, and that's why you're protecting, protecting them from danger. Or think if your doctor tells you to stop eating too many sweets because you're diabetic. Does the doctor hate you? Not at all. If he did, if he did hate you, he would have told you to carry on eating them until you had an early death. 
the doctor's warning is merciful. The route to mercy for Nineveh was through a confronting message. Now, what the Lord demanded of Nineveh is no different to what he demanded of Israel, the northern kingdom and Judah, the southern kingdom. But as we have seen with the king as a case example, where the king of Nineveh did what the king Jeroboam II did not, we can extend that and see that what Nineveh did, Israel has not done. While the pagan city received the word of the Lord and repented, Israel has not repented. And on the contrary, has gone on to presume on God because they think that just because they're God's chosen people or because they have the temple, they are exempt from judgment. You see, Israel thinks that they are immune to certain problems, but truth is they are not. And this is the warning we get in Matthew 12, verse 41, and the indictment on the Israelite generation during the time of Jesus. If Nineveh repented by the word of Jonah, and if Israel was indicted at that time for not responding as they were meant to, how much more is that the indictment true for the Israel at the time of Jesus? As we read in Matthew, something greater than Jonah is here. That something greater is Jesus. What more would the people want? Israel would presume that because of the temple, because of their heritage, they were immune. But not at all. What God demanded of Nineveh is the same thing that God demands of his people. It is not for us to presume, but rather to turn to God wholeheartedly in repentance and walk in the obedience of faith. If it was true back then and remains true for us now, the message which John the Baptist preached and which Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, should have served as a warning for Israel. It was a greater warning. Now for us, it serves us well to remember this. But likewise, it is important to rejoice in what great a salvation we have in Jesus. For it is in him and him alone that we are saved from the judgment of the holy wrath of God. So as we close, see that for Nineveh, the route to mercy was through a confronting message. The preaching of warnings is not unloving. And it ought to be done. However, we're not just to dismiss the warning and presume on God. On the contrary, we are to to repent, turn from our weakness and turn to him. The call to repentance stands. The difference lies in the fact that we no longer have to wait with anxiety to see if and how God responds. But rather we have assurance in Christ Jesus our Lord that there is mercy to those who repent. Those who in repentance turn to him wholeheartedly. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the merciful call that you have made, calling us to to turn away from our evil ways, from our weakness, and turn back to you. Holy Father, grant us humble hearts that we may walk in the obedience of faith. Make us humble to you, not to presume on your goodness and on your mercy, but rather walking you faithfully, repenting of our sins and turning to you. Give us courage to do so, because it will be hard and it will be a war to be waged. But it is in your strength, and it is for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.